0: Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Castensmith. And Sam, we, uh, we wrapped up our series on Jonah, and because we like the letter J so much, we've <laughs> moved into another J book. We're going to start talking about judges. When you say the book of judges, I think there's people out there, you know, even regular churchgoers that go, oh, <laughs> I I don't know that I've ever read that book. <laughs> and the ones who
1: have are probably still saying, oh, because <laughs> there's a lot of very
0: strange and cool stories in the book of Judges. So why don't we start by kind of giving people the idea of of who the judges were. They weren't just like leaders. There's a whole bunch of, you know, these judges all had certain things, certain characteristics in common, and they weren't. They weren't really rulers or kings, were they? Well, I mean, they had some element of
1: that where they they led the people. Okay. But that was that was kind of like so. I mean, they led them in battle. They redeemed them from you know being controlled by foreign enemies. There, so the, and and they brought and kind of enforced in some sense the word of God. Um, and so, when you get to the book of Judges, there's no king. It's not a democracy. In the book of Judges, the idea is God reigns as king through His word, which was given to Moses. Right. So, the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Torah—Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy—that's the word of God, and God reigns supreme. And so, it's kind of theocratic, and it's and it's set up. And so, the judges kind of brought forth. The rule
0: was it kind of handed down from Moses to the to the next guy to the, you know Moses to Joshua and so on and was it like a leader who was there to speak for God to the people? Correct. Okay.
1: Correct. So that's kind of the idea. And by the way, like this is one of the brief sections in the scriptures where you see theocratic reign, um, and it does not go well. <laughs> this, is, this is this is not an endorsement of theocracy. Theocracy does not work until you get to heaven, <laughs> right. you know, and you have a king who can actually reign it
0: righteously. And I think the big reason for that is that in a in a theocracy, it is still man who is the intermediary it's like yeah you know god we have the word of god or god brings his word and then people get involved mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. we're and, and they were interpreting it and explaining it and 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 deciding which parts of it they were going to keep and which parts they weren't and mm-hmm. you know and, and until we're actually being ruled by god himself in right. that case the theocracy will work perfectly when it's us and the lord and that's it no middleman, it's gonna be good.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that you're gonna see in the book of Judges is there's a couple of things that'll get repeated. Like one of the one of the lines that gets repeated is in those days there was no king. You right. know. So and one of the other ones that kind of goes along with that is every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so you don't have a governing body that kind of imposes onto people, and so everybody just kind of does what's right in their own eyes. They have the law of God, you know, they have priests, and they have, you know, some prophetic figures and judges, but nobody cares. And so one of the things you'll see in the book of Judges is it's is it does these cycles where they, they go, you know, they get a little bit righteous, and then they fall, and that just keeps happening again again and again but you'll notice through the book of judges they continue to get worse and worse and worse until finally at the you know when you get to the beginning of 1 Samuel which is after judges the people are like uncle we need a king <laughs> 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 we
0: need someone like this is just too gross so judges opens up with after the death of Joshua so mm-hmm. this time period in Israel is is Right after Joshua died, Joshua was the leader after Moses. So this had been basically, um, kind of a continuous, that was, that was our guy. That's the guy that speaks for God among us. Then Joshua dies and the people go to the Lord and say, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? I, I do think that it's kind of interesting that the book of Judges opens up with the people asking God, who's going to deliver mm-hmm. us? You know, who's yeah. going to fight for us? I mean, that mm-hmm. was the first thing on their mind. It does seem like with each of these judges, where they begin is by fighting somebody or, mm-hmm. or, or you know, doing something very dramatic to yeah. deliver Israel.
1: Almost all of the judges are brought in in those moments of crisis. Yeah. And so, you know, if we're, if we're giving a, a historical flyover, just so you understand where this stands in the story of redemptive history, you know, the, the book of Genesis takes you all the way back to Abraham. And so if we're looking at timeline, you know, put him right around 2000 B.C. And Abraham has, you know, the patriarchs, the sons. So Abraham's going to have Isaac, and Isaac's going to have Jacob, and Jacob's going to have the 12 sons. Um, which will ultimately lead to the 12 tribes of Israel, but they go to Egypt and they get enslaved for 400 years. But God had given a promise that at the end of the 400 years, being enslaved in a foreign land, he was going to bring them out of Egypt and he was going to bring them back into the promised land. And so Moses shows up sometime around 1450 BC and he leads the people out of their slavery in Egypt leads them through the Red Sea. They wander around in the wilderness. This is when they're getting the Ten Commandments. It's when uh, the story of manna and a lot of these miracles happens. Moses and the older generation of the Hebrews who came out of Egypt doubt the Lord. Their faith is weak, and God says, okay, you're not going into the Promised Land. Mm -hmm but god tells moses i'm going to raise up joshua to replace you and so moses will say just as god you know led through me he is going to be with you as well god gives joshua that promise and so every, for all of their time coming out of slavery you know moses was kind of their federal head or their leader or whatever you want to call him um and then when moses passed away then joshua was the guy that they looked to and so now when joshua passes away now they're like, okay, there has to be someone. Who's it going to be? Um, and that's what leads us into the period of judges. These judges will rule over Israel as they separate, and <clears throat> they're going to have tribal divisions. Each of the twelve tribes from the twelve sons of Jacob get an allotment of land, and so there's going to be people who reign over each of these territories.
0: Now, one of the things I noticed when I was reading through judges, because if we're going to talk about judges, I felt like I needed to be, you know, relatively recently having read through it. So I did that. And one of the things that struck me was what the, the painstaking detail that mm-hmm. the book went into to say that it, each one of these tribes had failed to eject from their allotment or their land or their area some people group that shouldn't that they were supposed to to kick out it's like they mm-hmm. they didn't get rid of the jebusites they didn't get rid of the parasites they didn't get rid of and instead they would it said kept saying that they, they would put them under tribute which i guess means hey we want you to give us money right just yeah. pay us they would become vassals vassals so yeah. we're not going to hurt you but we're going to be in charge here mm-hmm. um and so th- it did strike me that judges kind of even opens up with this idea that the people of God that Israel is compromising they're they're mm-hmm. they're, they're you know you know like so, hey we know what god said but <laughs> you know we're going to we don't need to do that we can do this over here
1: instead mm-hmm. so but that's what was prevalent in that land prior uh-huh. to the hebrews getting there that's what that's the system that was already there um, and so what's re- – it's fascinating because archaeology is bringing more and more of this to light, and I love this period of history. Um, so when Moses leaves Egypt, uh, one of the next pharaohs, the second pharaoh after Moses takes the Israelites out of Egypt as a guy by the name of Akhenaten. And Akhenaten is a famous pharaoh, and he's famous for a kind of an interesting reason. He's the only pharaoh in all of Egyptian history who is monotheistic. He takes all of the polytheistic Egyptian gods and throws them away, which is interesting coming in the aftermath of Moses, who was the founder of the monotheistic religion that we've inherited. Um, and so Akhenaten is – he moves the capital city of Egypt to a place called Amarna. And one of the things that they've found in about a century ago is they came across all these clay tablets that were in Amarna, where Akhenaten moved to the Egyptian capital, and it's so fascinating. But it's all these cities that Joshua and the Israelites, when they go into the promised land and they start conquering these these cities, all these cities start sending distress letters back to Egypt. And the reason why I bring this up is all these cities were vassal cities to Egypt. Um, The pharaohs had conquered all of the promised land right prior to Joshua going into the promised land, and so they would be inhabited by the Canaanites, and they would have a Canaanite king, but the Canaanite king would pay tribute back to Egypt and pharaoh, and so they were kind of under Egyptian control. It would be like Israel in the first century was under Roman control, and they paid taxes to Rome. Um but what's fascinating is these Amarna letters are coming from cities like Jerusalem and Shechem cities that the the Hebrews are going to invade and conquer and all of the letters have this in common they're sending flares up to Akhenaten say please come and help us the people who they call the Habiru the Habiru are conquering the lands and they're going to take all of the, this land and they're going to come for Egypt you'd better send help because the Habiru are conquering all of our cities And we now know uh, Dr. Frank Moore Cross, who is um, a Harvard professor, says that word habiru is the origin of the term Hebrew. And so we have the distress letters. When Joshua and, and the subsequent generations flood into the Promised Land, all these cities with their kings are sending letters saying, hey, if you want us to still support you and send you taxes, you'd better send the Egyptian army to help us. And you know what Akhenaten does? Nothing nothing (laughs) because he remembers just a generation earlier when the pharaoh got whipped by you know the god of moses and so the vassal so all these cities are already vassals and the hebrews come in and rather than doing what they should have done they kind of say all right we'll do that that sounds good Hmm. and they don't put down all of these different
0: cities Hmm.
1: and take control
0: so in Judges one, um, Judah is 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 nominated to be the guy that goes up, or not nominated. The Lord mm-hmm. said Judah will go up, and mm-hmm. so Judah and Simeon they go up and they fight this battle. Um, and one of the stories that I I right away I I found interesting, um, they get this guy whose name, and I'm gonna, I'm going to blow all these names. You have to forgive me, but uh, but I was <laughs> but in my head I pronounce it as Adonai Bezek. Um, And it says that he fled, they pursued him, they caught him, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And if you stop at that verse, you think, what a (laughs) weird thing to happen. It's
1: pretty representative of the book of Judges.
0: Yes. But then (laughs) here we go. That's verse six. And then in verse seven, and Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. (laughs) <laughs> and so one of the things that also is a hallmark of the book of judges is that it's very concerned about people about justice, about people kind of getting theirs, getting getting what's coming to them. Mm-hmm. Um and it, and it's both God's people and and other people. Like, you know, when when the Israelites would wander away and just do whatever they wanted, then some terrible thing would happen. they'd get you know in some war they couldn't win, or mm-hmm. just the Lord would visit them with some kind of judgment, and then they would they would cry out to God and He would remember His people, and He would send a judge. So the whole book is this cycle of things happening that are it's the people get judged, they get delivered, they fall away, they get judged, they get delivered, they fall away. but mm-hmm. all of it seems to be the theme to me seems to be people get what they deserve. Except for the fact that God continually shows mercy to His mm-hmm. own people,
1: yeah, so in the book of judges, you hit on this, there's a pattern, and it it's kind of six stages, and at the beginning of every new judge, it seems like you'll see this. Um, it'll say something like Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. you know, they turned away from the Lord, they they started doing wickedness. and you got to remember the tribes that inhabited this land prior to the Hebrews arriving. Are notoriously wicked. You know, there's child sacrifice. There's the treatment of women is unbelievably awful. Um, Just really, really terrible culture. And so Israel would kind of drift away and fall into that same kind of wickedness, just become kind of part of the world that they inhabited. Rather than being set apart, and it'd say, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so God raised up this foreign nation that conquered them and put them into slavery, so that's stage two and at this starts this should feel familiar because this is kind of our lives too, right, and so what do you do when when the bad thing comes and enslaves you? you cry out to the Lord and ask for deliverance there's three, and then God brings about a judge who's going to deliver them, so God brings the deliverance. And Israel then worships the Lord and is like, "Oh, we love you so much; you've delivered us." And then there's peace in the land for a while. And then they do evil in the eyes of the Lord again. And this cycle in Judges is very obvious; it's very pronounced. And I think it's 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 most certainly meant to be an example to um, human nature. You know, this this may be thirty five hundred years ago or so, but human nature has not changed. We still
0: follow this pattern. Yeah. So in chapter one, we meet Othniel, who is going to be the first judge. Now, we don't know he's the judge then, right? He doesn't – it's not identified until later. But Othniel shows up as being a great warrior. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the story here, it says that Caleb is looking for somebody that's – and I'm going to try the name. I'm brave. He who attacks Kiriath-Sephir. That works, yeah. Okay, Kiriath-Sephir, okay. And captures it. I will give him Aksa. There, trying again. My daughter for a wife, and it says that Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, so would have been Caleb's nephew, um, captured it, and so got Oxa his daughter for a wife. Um, then there's a scene where she goes and asks her dad for some springs and whatnot. Now you were telling me that there's some symbolism going on here, where where we meet Othniel. What what should we be noticing in this first story here? So so when you read this in the English, it, it's. You know, there's some things that
1: you'll miss. Okay, but when you pull out the Hebrew, it's kind of interesting. And I want to pause before we even get into that to talk about, you know, when they're coming into the Promised Land, their understanding is this is going to be God's kingdom. It's going to be set apart. It's going to be wonderful. And you know, there everything is going to be ha ha ha. You know, whatever. <laughs> and it's not. Judges turns in to one of the most awful books and all of scripture some of the worst and most depraved wickedness happens in the book that offers you what a theocratic reign would look like right with men at the helm right and and so it's making you hunger The idea is, man, we want the Lord and his righteousness and his peace to reign, but we can't do it. And the book of Judges shows you again again and again they can't do it. And then it's like, oh, maybe a king when you get to First Samuel, and then the kings can't do it. And so the whole of the Old Testament is to make you hunger for something that the Old Testament is showing you that man again and again fails to do. And so when you're introduced to the person of – Othniel, this is the idea. He, so Caleb comes into the land, and I love Caleb. Caleb is one of the two spies when Moses was looking to spy out the promised land to see if they could take it. They, he sends 12 spies into the promised land. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, come back and say, God's on our side, we can do it. The other 10 say, oh no, they're too big, we'll never be able to take it. And so they cower away and they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. But Caleb is faithful. He's right alongside Joshua. We named our oldest son Caleb because I love this guy so much. Um, But even in his old age, Joshua's like, you know, how can I reward you for your faithfulness in battle? And Caleb says, I want one thing. I want to be able to live and take possession of the city of Hebron. And Hebron is the place where the patriarchs are buried. So Caleb has such a great love for the promises given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that God is going to send this Messiah through the line. This is where they're all buried. And Caleb's like, I just want to be where they are. Mm-hmm. He's such a faithful guy. And so the moment that he gets Hebron in verse 10, then he's like, okay, I'm done. Uh, who wants to go on and conquer the next city? <laughs> <laughs> I, I got my deal. And so they go against the place of Debir. And Debir is the, the Hebrew. It, it literally translates to like word word. Um and Kiryath Sefer is two two Hebrew words. Kiriath means city and Sefer means a scroll or a book. Okay, and so the idea is they're coming in and they're taking the word, the city named after the word, the city of the scroll. And so Caleb says, "Okay, whoever attacks this city and captures it, hmm, what, what you can have my daughter Aksa for a wife. That'll be your reward if you can conquer the city of." the scroll, kiriath Saphir, And so Othniel steps up and says, ooh, ooh, let, let me do it. And he says, I'll go to war against that city to win a bride. And so sure enough, Othniel goes to war. He conquers Caria Saphir, gets Aksa for a wife, and then she, the bride, goes to her father and says, hey, can we have the springs too? And so Othniel inherits the upper and lower springs. He gets Aksa as a wife. He's grafted in. Um, to Caleb's family, all in the tribe of Judah. Um, it's really pretty wonderful, and it's a nice story that ends there. But what, it's, it, what it makes you long for is you know this is going to fail. You know this is, you know, when they came into the promised land, it's like, oh man, here it is. You know, God's going to reign with us, and he's going to be with us, and everything's going to be great, and it all crumbles through their fingers. And so when you get to the book of Revelation— you know the when the spirit gives John the vision of revelation there's this really really cool passage that is absolutely tied to this passage it's in revelation chapter 5 and so uh, hang with me and mm-hmm. in revelation 5 this is the way that it starts john is looking and it says then i saw He's having a vision of heaven. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, on the throne, here's God, and he's got a scroll that's written, and on the back it's sealed with seven seals. Now, what is this scroll? It's the story of salvation, is the idea. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So you get the idea, here's here's heaven, and there's one on the throne holding the scroll, and they're like, who can break this? Who can open up the story of redemption and salvation? Who can bust the seals to open the scroll? And no one was there. And so it says, John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, I love this. Weep no more. Mm. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In other words, here is somebody that can unfurl and unfold the story of salvation. He can break the seals. He alone is worthy in all of heaven to bring about the story of salvation. And the rest of Revelation goes on. And this person, this savior, who the lion of the tribe of Judah, who breaks the seals, goes on to win a bride. And guess who that is? That's you and me, brother. Right. <laughs> you know, it's weird to call ourselves a bride, but we're it, we're the church. But now now go back to the story of Othniel and let's let's think about this. You know what Othniel's name in the Hebrew is? It's the Lion of God is his name. And so now let's think about his story. He is going up against the city of the scroll. And Caleb asks, who can conquer the city of the scroll? And here you have Othniel, the lion of God of the tribe of Judah, who says, me. And he goes forth, and he conquers the city of the scroll, and he wins a bride and the springs of living water. Um, And so this story that's talking about the first moment when Israel came into the promised land, right? Right. And you're thinking, oh, this is going to be great. But everything slips through their fingers. Ultimately, Othniel's not going to bring them a permanent paradise. And Revelation, when we read chapter 5, we find that Jesus is so much greater than Othniel. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah who breaks the seals and opens up salvation and wins a bride and he's going to bring about that perfect righteousness and that perfect peace. And so the way that Othniel is introduced in Revelation is anticipating ultimately what Jesus will do in Revelation. It's really pretty amazing.
0: Hmm. That is interesting. One of the things that I – as I was reading over the story here Chapter 1 with Othniel, is that she? it says when she came to him talking about his wife, she urged him to ask her father for a field. So obviously she's urging Othniel mm-hmm. to ask the father for land. And I know that land was um, like a big deal back then. And I, the one thing that I was kind of curious about was this, um, and since you have set me in the land of the Negev, that's mm-hmm. like a significant area. Yeah.
1: Well, the Negev is the south of Israel. Negev uh-huh. in Hebrew literally means desert, but it's also the name of the desert it's okay. south of Jerusalem. So if you're looking at a modern map of Israel, you see you know, how it comes down to a point. It almost looks like a knife point. Well, down in that point, that's where the Negev is. That's the deserts, and so, you know, you've given me this great land in Judah, but it's it's the Negev. <laughs> yeah. You know, I kind of need some water. Yeah. Um, and so she says, you know, ask my father for this blessing. Um, and so Caleb gave her the upper and the lower springs.
0: Yeah. I also have to remember that Judah is the southern kingdom, Israel the northern kingdom, um, but that didn't happen at, at th- that wasn't the case yeah. at this time, was it? Yeah, or, that's
1: not until after Solomon. That's not until after so, Solomon. They divide. So Judges is going to begin around 1400 B.C. Right. Around there. Okay. And the kings are not going to start until right around 1050 B.C. So it's, you know, we're almost 400 years before they demand a king. Okay. So
0: um, so then we go through a, a bunch of history that people can read if they want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, if, well, like we talked about originally, uh, it just kind of goes down the roster and says and this person did not drive out there this tribe did not drive these people out and there's a whole bunch of the people not doing what god told them to do Um, but then we get down into the death of joshua um, and it says that when he dismissed the people uh, I'm in chap- I jumped ahead to chapter two, mm-hmm. verse six. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had all seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So they had this charismatic leader in Joshua that held everybody together. And then after he dies, and it's like they, they lose that institutional memory of what God did for them. And they turn and it says and they serve the Baals. Now these were these the Baals by when they say serve the Baals, those were like gods of the nations that were already there. So they were essentially joining the religion that was already in place in the lands where they were. They were but in other words, they were blending in with the culture.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things that when, especially going through archaeology, and you go through these cities, and you you see what the artifacts are that they pull out of these ancient Israelite cities from this time period. One of the things that's really shocking is we tend to romanticize the Israelites in our minds. We do, you know we 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 want to make them, you know, they're so faithful and they're they're just wonderful. God's lucky to have them, you know. And, and the reality is, like, when they're pulling out all these artifacts, they absolutely were pagan. You know, there's, there's lots of references to worshiping the Lord and you find all that stuff. But then you come to some of these cities and they're pulling out all this, you know, these, these artifacts that deal with the worship of Baal. And so the scriptures are very honest about that, that the people's hearts are constantly going to other gods. And what that makes us do is, as it makes us pause and go, my goodness, the Lord's patience and mm-hmm. the Lord's mercy, even though people, like even as he's showing them faithfulness, even as he's raising them up as a nation, even as he's protecting them and helping them to conquer their enemies and he's continually bringing salvation to them, they are continually walking away from him. They 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 treat him like a doormat in some sense, and the Lord's not going to be mocked. But his faithfulness to constantly come to chase after them is stunning. Um, And that's one of the other messages that's huge in the book of Judges, is they keep running away from God, and you're waiting for God to be like, okay, I'm done, here's another flood, (laughs) you know? And he just keeps chasing them. He keeps bringing about another redeemer, another deliverer. And, you know, when we hear that story, by the way, We should relate to the Israelites because each of us, you know, we go through these patterns where we go through seasons where we draw really near to the Lord and we're on fire. And then the next thing you know, we fall into these dry seasons where he feels distant and we fall away and we take our eyes off of him and other priorities start crowding him out and our behaviors change. And it takes some kind of a crisis or a wake up call for us to come back to the Lord. That's the story of the book of Judges. Yeah. And it happens in all of our lives. And he keeps chasing us. Yeah.
0: So um, Othniel's story as a judge begins, I guess, down in chapter three in verse seven. Othniel and this
1: part doesn't have like some really, really fascinating story. But one of the things he does one, it starts with a judge from Judah. And the book of Judges is going to lift up Judah as the preeminent tribe. It, it does that, you know, all the way through. They're given kind of a place of leadership. Um, but Othniel gives you – from the and verse 7 of chapter 3 gives you the prototypical way that the book of Judges works. So the whole cycle – All of those different things that we talked about, you know, how they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and, you know, God raised up an enemy. Listen to this passage because this lays down the pattern that's just going to be repeated again and again and again. Just different players. Yeah.
0: So chapter 3, verse 7 says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of Kushan, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Kushan Rishathaim? Rishat? Rishathaim, yeah. Rishathaim, okay. Kushan Rishathaim, I'm gonna make you do all these. King of Mesopotamia, I can do Mesopotamia. And the people of so Israel. you just
1: don't know that I'm, I'm just winging it. <laughs> Sounds good though, right? Yeah, it
0: does. It sounds like you know what you're talking <laughs> about. That's very good. And the people of Israel served the served Cushan-Rishathaim 8 years. Mm-hmm. So they were 8 years in captivity. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him. And that's something that is so boy, you know big star there in each case when we, start, when we start talking about the judges that do these remarkable things, they do the things that they're able to do they they're able to deliver the people because the spirit of the Lord is on them if yeah. the spirit of God is not on you, you are not going to deliver yourself yeah. or anybody else from anything
1: you're on a fool's errand you yeah.
0: are. So the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to—and by judged, by the way, we, they don't mean like—okay, um, we don't mean like judged as in <laughs> he's he's sitting back going, Israel, I told you. You know, it's like it's, he's not deciding right or wrong. He's not scolding. It just means delivered, right? It's like mm-hmm. he, he delivered Israel. Yeah, he He took the office of a judge. So he went out to war, and the Lord gave— Kushan Rishathaim, there we go. King of Mesopotamia into his hand, and his hand prevailed. Oh, you're going to do this to me again one more time over Kushan <laughs> Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel the son of Kenaz died. Now the forty years thing. um As I was reading through Judges, every judge was forty years except for the guy we're going to get to in, in a little bit. Mm-hmm. The second judge, his was. Eighty years, so, but it seemed like it was these units of forty years. What's mm-hmm. what's significant about the unit of forty years?
1: So forty, it's just a pattern that you find in the in the Bible all over the place, and it's usually reserved for times of trial. Um, so, for instance, when, when the Israelites don't have the courage to obey God and go into the promised land, they wander around in the wilderness for how long? Forty years. Right. Um, Jesus, uh, by the way, when he's tempted in the wilderness, it's, it's going 40 to be days, for forty right. days. When Moses goes on Mount Sinai and he's you know fasting and receiving the Ten Commandments, he's up there fasting for forty days. So the The pattern of forty days usually has to do with a period of trial, but in in these instances it's rest. you know mm-hmm. God has turned their trial into forty years of rest, and you'll see that by the way continue into the kings um where
0: a couple of the kings major kings will reign for forty years. So Othniel was sort of the uh, the prototype or the epitome of the judges. Uh, he's a, um, wh- I mean, what we know about Othniel is that um, he was married to somebody who was a godly woman. You know, it was like of, of of the people of God. He didn't marry outside the tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he kind of just did things the right way. I mean, Othniel yep. was a was a stand up guy, um, and I think that that's. Interesting in and of itself, because when we get to the end of Judges, you have a guy who's like the mirror, in my mind, the mirror image of Othniel in Samson. Samson's Mm -hmm. not a stand-up guy. Samson marries somebody from outside of the tribe of Israel. Like, he just Mm -hmm. does everything the wrong way. Othniel did everything the right way. Samson did everything the wrong way, and yet God (laughs) delivered Israel through both of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Samson's
1: one of those guys when you read about him in Hebrews 11 in the heroes of faith chapter, you're like, wait, what? Well, who? Who? <laughs> yeah, hold yeah, exactly. on. How did he get in? Here? <laughs> um, but the the story of judges, the major judges that we're going to hit on, you'll notice they go from Othniel who, man, like c- could you get any better? I mean, the line of God of the tribe of Judah who's one of the first ones who says, "Ooh, me, 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 let me be the one who who comes in to bring about God's promise." I mean, he's just this really wonderful guy who delivers Israel. And what you'll find is Ehud is pretty good, the next one. Deborah is pretty good. But once you get on the other side of Deborah, even in Gideon, who we kind of hold up as this really, really noble figure, there's some things about Gideon um, that are meant to make you go, wait a minute, he's not so great. Um, and then from there, it just falls apart. Yeah. And so the judges just get progressively worse um, till you get to Samson, yeah. who's shockingly bad.
0: <laughs> he's a i mean he's a real character and yet he's probably the one that people are more familiar with because Mm -hmm. obviously samson is like the hercules of the old testament i mean he's possessed by superhuman strength and he he continually does these things that are absolutely amazing you know he's one of those guys that you just picture him as being the life of the party you know it's Mm -hmm. like samson's larger than life you just imagine a booming voice and a big presence and I, frankly, I think Samson and the Rock look a lot alike, you know, or, <laughs> or you know, go back a few years, Arnold Schwarzenegger or something. You just picture somebody like that who sort of dominates the whole scene. Um, and Othniel, you just kind of get the feeling that Othniel is a guy that's a, he punches a clock, you know, he gets the job done. He's a, he, and yet he's a he's a great warrior, right? Mm-hmm. He's he's won these battles for for Israel and led them and defeated their enemies. Is it's interesting too that they were in captivity to, for eight years and then they had rest for forty years. So God's mm-hmm. deliverance lasted longer than their punishment did. Um, I don't know if there's a direct connection between the but because like when we get into Ehud's story, we'll see that they were um, that they were in captivity or or, or being dominated by this other king for 18 years. And then Ehud, they had 80 years of rest after that. So again, as I read that, I'm like, man, each time God gave them a longer period of rest than he did of
1: punishment. Yeah, you kind of want to climb into the mind. Like if I'm I'm among these Israelites and I've just come out of Egypt where my people had been enslaved, not for 18 years, but for 400 years— You know, every time that you're brought under subjugation of someone else, you have to wonder, like, is this it? Is this going to be centuries again? Um, The people certainly would have had this fear, and and the Lord continually redeems them. Um, So after eight years, he steps in with Othniel and provides them peace, Um, and he'll do the same with Ehud, and he'll do it again with Deborah, and he'll do it again with Gideon. It's like – he doesn't allow them to return to that sense of permanent slavery it's okay. just his mercy again and again
0: so um, after othniel then we do have ehud which is chapter 3 begins in chapter 3 verse 12 and ehud has one of the most interesting yeah. or stories in this the old this is every
1: 13 year old's favorite bible story
0: it is because right here. He, you know he as i keep calling him ehud the left-handed assassin like that's his mma <laughs> fighter name but uh, in verse 12 it says and the people of israel again there's the key word, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He, meaning Eglon, gathered himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. What, what's the city of Palms? Is The that-
1: uh, city of Palms is Jericho.
0: Jericho, okay. Um,
1: it's named that for obvious reasons. In the ancient world, Jericho was a tremendously wealthy city so it had been destroyed when joshua had come through and it was beginning to be built up as a palace city by eglon Mm -hmm. um, at this time
0: and the people of israel served eglon the king of moab 18 years then the people of israel again here they cried out to the lord and the lord raised up for them a deliverer ehud the son of Gera, the benjaminite a left-handed man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you had a when when you were uh, telling me about what this actually meant. The left-handed man. It actually uses what it uses the phrase for a right-handed person and it adds a word. <laughs> yeah. So, in the ancient world.
1: And this is going to be one of the patterns that you'll find it, that I love about the Book of Judges. God, when He chooses to deliver people from these foreign oppressors, see, Othniel's like the 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 standard guy. He's the hero that everybody wants. But from Othniel forward, when it gives us a description about one of these heroes – they all have these seemingly fatal flaws that should disqualify them from being a hero. And Ehud is is the first one we're given an example of because in the ancient world if you were left-handed you were seen as cursed. You were seen, you know, there's something wrong with you. Everything that's noble in the scriptures of the ancient world is referred to as being of the right hand. You know, if, if you sit at my right hand, that's, you know, nobility.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But a left-handed person was seen as cursed, and so even in the <laughs> even in the Hebrew the term left handed it doesn't, it's not what it literally says. The, in the Hebrew, the term is literally, he was lame, right handed. Hmm. <laughs> so it's like he didn't have use of his right hand. That's the way they referred to left handed people, apparently.
0: Now, one of the commentaries that I read said that in Hebrew, there was another phrase too for left handed. Um, and that this, mm-hmm. in, that they were saying that there's even maybe something significant here that it <laughs> could have potentially been indicating. Um, because it, they said one way to look at this is that he, his right hand was restricted or lame, like you're Mm -hmm. saying. Um, that it could have been a situation where, and this kind of goes to what you were saying, Ehud might have had some kind of weakness or deformity or something about his right hand that made it not, that made it useless to him. Mm -hmm. Um, so then again, you know, if that's correct, if they're, if they're, you know, reading between the lines is correct in this commentary, then, again, God is using somebody who is, by human standards, not a powerful person, not a powerful warrior, to deliver his people. It's like, mm. a, He, you know, the Lord loves to work against type, um, and this would be another example of that.
1: You know, one of the things that they did do in the ancient world, they just recently they were excavating a place called Avaris that's in Egypt. And when they were digging, they found a ton of right hands that were cut off. Hmm. And one of the things that they are finding was common in the ancient world is if you had an enemy and the enemy surrendered peacefully, in other words, you didn't have to kill them one of the things that you would do to make them less of a threat going forward is to cut off their right hand. And so in Avaris, they found this treasure trove of all these right hands. And so it makes me wonder, as you're saying that, if maybe that is something that happened to Ehud. He's a warrior who had his hand cut off because that was a common thing in in those days.
0: Or perhaps also that because even if that's not the case, if he was somebody whose right hand – wasn't strong, wasn't mm-hmm. functional, or didn't, could, he couldn't use it, it would have made him seem less dangerous to Eglon. Yeah, sure. And so Eglon would have allowed him to approach closer without being worried about him because his right hand didn't work. Everybody back then carried their swords in their right hands, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, he's a left-handed man, and the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, so they gave the money, the 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 payoff, you know, the the vig, the uh the 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 uh, protection money <laughs> to uh, the, the king of Moab is is mod, is the ancient mafia here. We're going to send you your money, so you don't you leave us alone. And it says that had made for himself a sword with two edges. A cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So that's like a 18 to 20 inch blade. So good sized, uh, blade, but a fairly short sword. Um, and it, the, the interesting thing for as I was, cause, because it made a point about anytime it makes a point about a detail, like he made for himself a sword with two edges. I always have to like look why they, it actually, the literal word there is he made himself a sword with two mouths. Hmm. It was it was kind of was kind of interesting the idea that they, that that's what I don't know you know it's the idea of two edges devouring it, two the blood it, it's devouring right that sort of thing. Um, so Ehud says and he Ehud presented the tribute to Eglon king of Moab and this is the part where I suddenly step in and identify with the story. Now Eglon <laughs> was a very fat man. Um, now. You know, I love it's how that. blunt the Bible is. The, <laughs> uh, this, would, this would not fly today. <laughs> <laughs> and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, this would be Eglon, the king, commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. So again, you know, reading between the lines, Ehud, Probably not perceived as a threat. He just brought him tribute. Um, you know, certainly seemed to be, he was being like, you know, very <laughs> bowing down, you know, King, I have a, a secret word for you. And it says, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat and he had reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, (laughs) for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Yeah, this Um, is
1: always fun to walk the the middle school children through this story.
0: um, Basically, he (laughs) he disemboweled him. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that's— yeah. <laughs> I can see why, I can see why the middle schoolers like that story so much.
1: So he's got this, this blade. So it says it's a cubit long. So this is 18 inches. And you got to imagine Ehud, who's got the sword on his right side. Usually, if you're a warrior, you'd have it on your left side if right. you were right handed. So it's right. concealed under his clothes and he pulls it out. Nobody had seen it. Nobody detected it and he plunges 18 inches into his stomach, and the fat literally swallows the entire 18-inch sword or dagger or whatever you want to call it. And the hilt. It says, and the hilt. (laughs) This is some impressive girth.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think that you could stick an 18-inch sword in me even and and have it with the hilt. Uh, So, at any rate, um, then it says that Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Um, And that's because, obviously, (laughs) they could smell (laughs) that he had been disemboweled here. Um, And they waited until they were embarrassed. I thought that was also (laughs) an interesting thing. Um, But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Uh, Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. Um, And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So Ehud's actions obviously threw Moab into such a tizzy that they couldn't get, you know, I mean, it just sounds like it's complete chaos after Mm -hmm. that.
1: Yeah. And you have this, this guy who is one of the first, one of the first people who's the unlikely hero who is now celebrated in Israel. And, you know, that's one of the things that you're going to find for the rest of the book of Judges is God very deliberately is bringing up these people that you would think never in a million years could they be the one. And he's going to take, you know, the disabled or the people who are seen as cursed or a woman or a coward or, you know, we're going to go down the list. And it's showing you God, you know, just as it did in the in the book of Genesis when you're always finding that it's never the firstborn, it's always, you know, the secondborn or the fourthborn that's going to receive the promise. Totally – Atypical of the culture of that day, when, when the book of Judges is written and it takes these people, like left-handed people mm-hmm. and women, and exalts them. And one of the things you'll find in Judges that's really fascinating is how much women are repeatedly exalted as the heroic figure. In the ancient world, this would have not been seen as a mark of pride <laughs> among the nations. It would have been something that they were mocked for. Um, And yet the scriptures come along and lift up all of these people as God's heroes, Mm -hmm. the ones that God uses. And, you know, that remains true to us all the way into the New Testament when God doesn't choose princes, he doesn't choose kings and and prophets, he chooses fishermen and the, Mm -hmm. the people that are despised in the eyes of the world. And he takes the lowly and he exalts them and uses them to change the world. And he's he's done that going back all the way to the beginning.
0: One thing I feel like maybe is worth talking about just for a minute here mm-hmm. is you and I are kind of pretty used to the stories from the Old Testament and the fact that these sto- a lot of these stories involve – yeah you know, violence somebody's getting killed somebody's getting mm-hmm. stabbed or decapitated or things are getting cut off or something like that um and the old testament is a book that is is really full of very violent depictions and violent scenarios. lots of war going on back then um you know our modern day sensibilities tend to be offended at this idea that mm-hmm. that violence would be so casual back then um how should we look at the, the, uh, the things that we read in the Old Testament? How, do, how do we characterize those when we rehear these stories?
1: I, you know, I think, I think we should have some sense where we look at these stories and we're repulsed. You know, it's, right. this isn't a part of God's original design. You know, war is something that will be an anomaly in eternity. You know, that won't be there. Death won't be there. Suffering won't be there. All of these uh, idolatry won't be there. Um, but there's, you know, the reality is, is the people who read the Bible, depending on where you are in the world, are offended by different types, different parts of it. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. You know, in the West, in places where we know prosperity and places where we know peace, uh, when we come across stories of war, you know, when, when it's two cultures that go at it and the Israelites wipe out, you know, a wicked king like the Moabites, you know, we look at that and go, oh, <gasps> oh my goodness, this is so awful, I, I can't handle this. You know, it, it offends our sensibilities because we think it's barbaric and it's horrible. But if you were to pick up and you were to go to a place that just endured some horrific genocide mm-hmm. um, and you were to say to people, hey, I want you to read Jesus' Jesus's words to you that say, yeah, 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 I know that your village just experienced some you know, maniacal tyrant that came through and raped your sisters and your moms and put your family to death, but I want you to turn the other cheek. Mm. They would be every bit as offended Mm. by that teaching as we are by the historical realities that the world is violent. Mm. You know, and it's not just the Bible. This is historical realities. There's never been long periods of time anywhere in the world that were peaceful. And so there's a, a brilliant philosopher, Miroslav Miroslav Wolf, who came out of the whole Bosnia and Croatia where there were atrocities all over the place. And he gave a a talk and he said, you know, it's only in Western minds where the idea of justice, the God's justice, where we take a – offense to that, you know, the notion of hell or the notion that God's people might bring justice on a wicked culture or whatever, you know, we look at that and go, oh, how dare you? Um, But the idea of God's vengeance for somebody who's just experienced unbelievable travesty and injustice is the only thing that allows someone in some of these war-torn countries to actually forgive, Mm. Um, that justice is coming, you know, Mm -hmm. that that God will have— justice for the wicked is the only way that they can step back and say, you know what, I am going to forgive because I'm going to trust God with forgiveness. And when you're looking at ancient cultures, like we read Moabites, and we don't know what that means, but if you jumped in a time machine and you went back to 1400 BC and you saw what Moabite culture looks like when they're worshiping their gods of Shamash and Moloch, and what they would do, we know this, it's it's horrific, is they would take these bronze statues. This is one of the ways that they worshipped because they believed that gods were gods of fertility. And so how did you worship them? You gave them your children, um, trusting them to give you more. And so one of the ways that you worship was to go to the god Moloch and they would make bronze statues and put a furnace underneath him so that the the image of this bronze god would begin to glow, and everybody in front of it would see the god glowing, and it's like he was coming to life. And his arms would be outstretched as, like, ready to receive an offering. And then parents, kings, would take children of the people and lay them in these red-hot arms that would set children ablaze And the weight of the children on these soft arms would cause the metal to begin to drop and open up, and the child would fall down into a furnace and and die and be burned to death. Mm. Um, You read accounts where, I mean, you see this in Genesis with some of these, where, you know, Dinah. Um, in Genesis 34, where she just goes into the city of Shechem and is wanting to see what the world is like back in that day and what happens. Shechem grabs her, rapes her, abuses her. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah where you know somebody comes and walks into a town and seeks refuge and everybody's banging on the door to rape them. Now, we think of those as anomalies, but in the ancient world, that's how wicked the world was. This wasn't an anomaly three, 4,000 years ago. And one of the things that we take for granted, and we do this with unbelievable self-righteousness and arrogance, is to say, we're good people. Mm. You know, if it, if it was not for the influence of Christianity, think about the areas of the world where Christianity has not influenced greatly, and you'll find women's rights, atrocious. You'll find human rights violations. Unbelievable. And as cultures walk away from their Christian roots, you find things like the Holocaust. You find where man is the measure of all things, and we do whatever's right in our own eyes. And we are capable, even today, you know, we say, oh, they were so barbaric back then. Well, the Holocaust was less than a century ago. And, you know, I would just say that the nature of man is far, far more wicked than we give it credit for. And our humble reliance upon the mercy of God should change us as a people. Yeah. Um, and so I'd say, yeah, I'm right there with you. When you read this and you're offended, I'm offended with you, and I wish... That people were not so arrogant. I wish people didn't see themselves as the measure of all things. I wish they humbled themselves before God and did what God asked us to do. Because, by the way, God commanded them, don't murder. God commanded them to take care of the poor. God commanded them to love the oppressed. God commanded them to help the infirmed. And, you know, like these are these are commands. If the world lived according to his counsel, it'd be a world we want to live in. Mm but when you see this kind of barbarity this isn't god's design this is what we bring upon ourselves when we become the measure of all things yeah.
0: i like that that's a good answer um it's a it's a good answer yeah god's being merciful in not mm-hmm. just exterminating all of us <laughs> amen amen um, you know and the church right now in particular um when people look at the church and they and they look at um us as a, as a sort of a political arm. We don't want to be seen as supporting any um, institutions of, of this world.
1: When God brings his people into the Promised Land, there's this great momentous moment when Joshua and the people, they come through the Jordan, they're about to go to battle against Jericho, and, you know, the Lord appears to Joshua, you know, as a as a warrior. And Joshua wants to know, he demands to know, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or their side? Mm. And the Lord's answer is instructive, you know, because it's clear, you know, one side is clearly more righteous than the other. You know, Joshua's side is the righteous one, so you should clearly say, I'm on Joshua's side. But the Lord says, no. I mean, that's his his answer. Joshua says, are you on our side or their side? And God says, no, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and I think we would do well to recognize that, that, you know, if you put yourself under the banner of some human being, inevitably that human being is going to let you down, is going to lead you into wickedness, is going to screw you up, like, inevitably. Yeah. And so the Christian is called to run under the banner of the Lord. When We don't go to the Lord and say, whose side are you on? Ever. <laughs> you yeah. know, we, we do whatever we can to tell the
0: world we're on the Lord's side.
1: Yeah. Period. Yeah. His banner.
0: Well, we'll let that stand as our last word for this week uh, on our look at the Book of Judges. Uh, next time we'll be getting into the story of Deborah, which is, uh, which is fascinating, not just because Deborah is a female judge, um, something that you just, you know, the idea of female leaders and deliverers of countries was absolutely a crazy thought back in that time frame. It was very, very rare that that happened. Uh, you know, Sam, you mentioned the, the female Pharaoh. There's like, there's like what? One, isn't there? Or mm-hmm. two? I think there's two. two. Uh, there's one who's really famous. So it's just not, you know, just again, this idea that there's that Deborah being a female leader, that's that in itself is remarkable. So we'll be taking up her story uh, when we come back next week and look at that part of Judges.
1: Just to note, even Hatchip she didn't inherit it. The only reason she became Pharaoh is because her her son was too young to take the throne. So, I mean, even in Egypt, it wasn't seen as, oh, yeah, we should have Hmm. a female pharaoh. It just, the circumstances required it.
0: So if you'd like to correspond with us, uh, as as I regularly mention, we have an email address, out of water at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O-Vistachurch.com, where you can also find um, all of our back episodes at riovistachurch.com slash out of water. You can also get them through our Rio Vista Church smartphone app, which is available in your choice of app store, whether that's iOS or Android. Uh, You can also hear this on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, or on Spotify. Sam, I'll be back next week with more from Judges, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash Water.